0: Hi, um, my name is Lynn Queen and I live here in Batavia and I also work at Mercy Housing and I also attend Chapel Street Church. I have a friend that I was on leadership with for Moms Together and she invited me to help with a fundraiser for to raise money for Mercy Housing and I had never heard of Mercy Housing but of course my heart just said yes I will help you with what you need and I was intrigued to learn that they're my neighbors and that they need so much help. So I have three children that are in the same school district as many of these children. And I have a son who is very quiet, my youngest, and he would be asking for two sandwiches, two bags of chips, two apples. And I thought, he can't be eating all that. Finally, one day I asked him, what are you doing with all this food? And he said, there's some kids that don't have lunches and I want to share mine with them and that really touched my heart, and I thought, who are these children that he's talking about? And my daughter said that there was a boy that needed clothing, he was wearing the same thing every day, and I, I just went on with my day and didn't think much about it, and I thought, well, let's pray about it, how can we help people? And when I came that day, I saw two of the children that I knew that my children were talking about, and I thought, there's a way I could serve them, I need to do this. So I visited and met with the property manager because I just felt this calling to see how I could help and serve here and they offered a job and I started working shortly after. Um, I've been here three and a half years. The last time Chapel Street was here was 2019 and we had a wonderful turnout. They were able to create a second raised garden for us which we have people that have never grown food before we have children that have never seen how food was grown so chapel street built those shelves here for us the food pantry has shelves and we've been able to serve so many families every month from just having shelving units on the walls so that we could expand that food pantry now it's a full grown pantry for those who don't drive because we have many seniors and Um, people who don't have a car. So they're able to um, utilize our pantry and help them get through the month. So Chapel Street today for their day of serving is working on organizing our art room. They're also working on our picnic tables, which we have many people that um, do love to sit outside and they've never been stained. So they're rough and many splinters, lots of tears. So I have a list on my phone, and I always have my phone with me, and I make a list of things I see or residents' needs, and sometimes I just want to scream it from the rooftops. I need help with this, so um, when we were gathered today, I just asked if anyone knew anything about computers, and someone stepped right up. Oh my gosh, I see five on! Wow! Are you kidding? Oh my gosh! Okay, I'm going to hug you, I don't care, I'm going to hug you. Thank you! I'm so grateful to have that opportunity to have the kids come back in the fall and say, oh, I can use the computers now. I think working here at Mercy Housing has strengthened my relationship with God in that I am His servant, I am full of joy, and when people say I'm passionate, I'm honored because I know it's my passion for God that gives me that strength and grace and courage to do what I do. And I just feel like that's our calling to help one another and serve one another. So I just pray every day that God will give me those right words or actions to take to, to serve the residents here who are my neighbors.
1: If you've been here at Chapel Street for some time, you know that we really do want to be a church that exists not just for those of us who are already inside the walls and already part of the family, but we want to also be here for those who are outside our walls, who are not yet part of God's family. And one of the ways we do that is just by finding ways to serve our neighbors. So we thank you. We thank Lynn and so many others who have been involved this summer serving in all sorts of different ways, including many of you. Well, as most of you know by now, if you've been around for a while, my brother, uh, Joe, is a pastor at Ohio, and I grew up playing sports. We loved sports as kids, and we both eventually uh, played basketball in both high school and college. In fact, my brother's high school team, which was Boone High School in Orlando, Florida, actually won the 1977 state high school championship in Florida. I'm going to tell you some of that story. It was his senior year, and although they had a good team, they weren't expected to do anything great. They weren't even expected to win their conference championship, let alone uh, go to the state tournament. But they kind of came together and put together a very exciting run at the end of that season. They won their conference championship, went on um, as underdogs in every game, won the next four games in the state tournament to make it all the way to the state finals. And they were even greater underdogs in the state final game. One local newspaper actually said they looked like a junior high team uh, playing against a men's team because the number one team in the state was their opponent in that game. But that night at that game, And I was there. Uh, They played an almost perfect game. Uh, They were leading by like 15 points at halftime. We couldn't believe it. But in the second half, the other team, which was very talented, began to sort of find their rhythm. And uh, the lead was down to like nine or ten points at the end of the third quarter. The comeback continued. And with about two minutes to go in the game, my brother's team was only leading by about three points. And so it felt like it felt like this dream was slipping away. It felt like uh, the other team was inevitably going to, uh, to beat my brother's team. And then um, disaster happened. Uh, my brother, uh, who was the point guard and captain of the team, fouled out of the game with, a little less, with less than two minutes to go in the game. And we were thinking, what, what, what now? What are we going to do now? He is the leader on the court. Uh, h- how are we going to win this game? We have a two-point lead. What's the coach going to do? And we all watched as the coach went down the bench to pick the player that was going to replace my brother, and he picked this guy at the end of the bench, a kid named Kurt Stasky. And we all went, "No, not Kurt!" <laughs> because Kurt hardly ever played. He was a little like five- nine, scrawny, left-handed kid. I remember he had long sideburns. but he was so far down on the bench that even in practice. He often didn't get to play with the first and second team guys. He was like a third team guy. And during the year, when he couldn't get into the practice, he would just stand on the side of the court. and All he could do is just shoot foul shots. He'd shoot free throw after free throw after free throw. Good guy, not a very good player. Uh, and that's who the coach chose. Now here's the thing. Um, my brother, even though he was a very good player, went on to play college ball, wasn't a great free throw shooter. He was all wound up. He just wasn't a great free throw shooter, but he was a good player. And what the other coach didn't know is what Kurt Stasky had been doing all season long, which was shooting free throws on the side of the court. And that's what we didn't know. We're going, no, not Kurt. So as soon as he went in the game, the other team's coach, which any coach were to the salt would have done, said, foul the new kid, foul the little guy. He's cold, he just came off the bench, foul that kid. And they fouled him. And Kurt Stasky, who hadn't made a single point, I don't think, all season long, <laughs> made four straight free throws in the final minute of that game, and they won the state championship. So Kurt Daske was an unlikely hero. I texted my brother this morning to make sure I had the name right, uh, and he said, first thing he said to me was, I I, I couldn't remember his first name was Kurt or Ray. I said, was it Kurt or Ray? And he said, it was Kurt. And he he said, by the way, awesome story. All these years later, he still remembers that story. So we're in the next to last part of our summer long series from Hebrews chapter 11 called By Faith. And the author, as you know, has been going back Um, looking at men and women of the Old Testament at the power of faith in their lives as a way of encouraging these Hebrew background believers in Jesus to hang on to their faith during times of struggle and hardship. And last week we looked at a very unlikely hero. Many of these people have been very unlikely heroes. We looked at, at the unlikely story of Rahab. Pastor Andrew brought that message to us. The prostitute of Jericho who put her faith in the hands of the God of Israel and then was saved. And now we come to the very end of the chapter. The author is beginning to kind of summarize everything he's been saying. And so we're going to look today at Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 32, and read to verse 40. So you can follow along on the screens or look in your own Bibles. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 32. <coughs> Excuse me. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets. It sounds here like a a preacher running out of time. Time would fail me, but bear with me. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Going to look at three things this morning. A faith that conquers, a faith that suffers, and a faith that is made perfect. First, a faith that conquers. Uh, Years ago, uh, we were visited right here uh, at at Chapel Street, formerly First Baptist Church of Geneva, uh, on this platform by a Romanian pastor named Joseph Son. Some of you may remember when he visited. I can't remember how many years ago it was, but it was many. Well, he had been a leader in the Romanian church uh, during the late 1970s, uh, during the height of the brutal communist regime under a dictator named Nicolae Ceaușescu. He had been arrested, interrogated many times, and despite threats on his life, he continued to preach the gospel. At one point, the secret police, and these are stories that uh, Pastor Sohn told while he was here, at one point, um, the secret police threatened him, saying, uh, Dr. Sohn, uh, we can shoot you today, and no one will ever know what happened to you You are an enemy of the state. You must stop what you're doing uh, And pastor Sohn looked back at that secret policeman and said yes, I know you can do that I know you have the power to shoot me, but with all due respect. He said let me explain to you how that will work Your greatest weapon is killing. He said my greatest weapon is dying My sermon tapes have been spread all over this country. And if you kill me, which I know you can, you will sprinkle my tapes with my blood, and I will speak ten times louder in death than I ever have in life. In fact, I will conquer this country for Christ if you kill me. With all due respect, that's how that will work. The next time he was arrested, just a couple of weeks later, uh, the head of the secret police said to him, Dr. Sohn, we know your plan. We are not so foolish as to make you into a martyr. And so in 1981, they exiled him to the U.S. He came here, continued preaching and sending tapes back to Romania. And a few years later, if you remember the story, the history, in 1989, after the arrest of another dissident pastor named Laszlo Tokish, the Ceausescu regime was toppled, collapsed, and Joseph Sohn returned to Romania. So in a sense, in a large way, faith conquered a communist dictator and an entire regime. That's what we see here in Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Now I want you to see two things here. First, The author's telling us that God uses the faith of flawed people. God uses the faith of flawed people. The author goes through six names. They're stories very familiar to the first readers of the letter to the Hebrews because they're Old Testament characters. Somewhat less familiar to us today, I think. But when we look back at these stories, we'll do so briefly in just a minute, we see something very interesting. While each person mentioned by name accomplish something great, they did so despite some rather glaring personal flaws. So follow me here. Gideon. His story is told to us in Judges chapter 6. We're told that the people of Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they were being terrorized by their enemies, the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon to call him to lead, Gideon is hiding in fear of the Midianites. The angel says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I think it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek humorous address. And Gideon says, in effect, who, me? Are you talking to me? He questions the angel. He says, if God is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And then the Lord himself says to Gideon, go in the strength that you have. Have I not called you? And then Gideon says, you've got the wrong guy. Lord, you've got the wrong guy. How can I save Israel? I'm from a a weak family. I'm the weakest in my whole family. Lord, I'm I'm kind of a loser. God says, I will be with you. I will strike down the Midianites. And that's not enough for Gideon. He says, then show me a sign. In fact, he says it several times. He needs several signs. So at this point in his life, Gideon is not exactly a pillar of courage and faith, but He eventually obeys and leads a great victory. Then on to Barak. You may not be as familiar with Barak. I had to go back and read the story, Judges 4 and 5. He's called by a female prophet named Deborah, who we're told is leading Israel at that time. He's called by her to lead 10,000 men into battle against an enemy army led by a guy named Sisera. But Barak balks at this assignment. And he says, I won't go. He refuses to go into battle unless Deborah agrees to come with him. Okay, Deborah does go with them. Victory is accomplished, but the honor then goes to another woman named Jael who, as you might remember, uh, drove a tent peg through the head of Sisera while he slept. One of the more grisly graphic stories of the Old Testament. Then we move to Samson. You know a little bit about Samson. His stories in Judges 13 to 16. Samson was blessed by God, called by God to lead, but had all kinds of character flaws, right? He had problems with women Big problems with women. He had impulse control problems. He had anger issues. But eventually he trusts God and in one last act of faith defeats the Philistines. And then we have Jephthah. How many are read up on the story of Jephthah? Anybody? I didn't think so. Jephthah. I had to look back at it. Judges chapter 11. We're told he was a great warrior. But before a great battle against the Ammonites, he makes a strange and rash vow. He promises to God that if he wins the victory, that he will sacrifice whatever comes out of his house first. The victory is won. He goes home, and the first thing to come out of his house is not his animal, not a goat, not a pig, but his daughter. Oops. Not a good decision. Samuel. Look into 1 Samuel. He served Israel faithfully for many, many years led Israel. But eventually he appointed his own two sons to lead, and both of them were told were greedy and corrupt. David, King David, amazing man, defeated Goliath on the battlefield, <coughs> excuse me, became one of the greatest kings of Israel, but is remembered in part for his great sin with Bathsheba. So all are heroes of faith, but they're also flawed people. And in that way they are unlikely heroes of faith. Of faith. And they are remembered here in this chapter not because they were perfect, not because they did amazing things, but simply because in some way, despite their mistakes, despite their flaws, in some way they believed God and obeyed. Here's a question for you Have you ever found yourself thinking something like, well, I just don't think God could ever do anything? Really special through me, because my faith, my faith just—it just isn't strong enough. I don't think it's—I don't think it's rich enough. I mean, I'm not—I'm not, um, I'm not a, a, a great person of prayer. Uh, I've made mistakes. I'm kind of a nobody. I think a lot of people sometimes have fleeting thoughts like that, like, "What could God possibly do with me?" But this uh, list tells us a little something different. Hebrews 11 is telling us that the power of faith is not about the strength of our faith. It's not about the strength of faith I can muster up. It's about the strength of the one in whom we put our imperfect faith. Here's the way one guy says it. You don't have to be perfect to be a hero in God's hall of faith. The way I would say it is even weak or imperfect faith is better than unbelief. So if you feel like your faith is imperfect in some way, if you look at your life and you feel like, well, I failed in this way, I failed in that way, that's what this story is about. It's for you. Your faith, even though imperfect, is in a perfect God and in a God who is strong and can accomplish these things. So that's the first thing we see. God uses the faith of flawed people. But the second thing we see in this list is that faith does conquer. Faith achieves Victory, verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Just as Pastor Joseph Sohn overcame persecution and threat to triumph over an entire communist regime, the author gives us a, a bunch of examples of victorious faith. He says, some conquered kingdoms. Remember Joshua, the story of the walls of Jericho, how he drove out the Canaanites and took the promised land, who stopped the mouths of lions, he said. We think immediately of the story of Daniel, how the king Darius threw him into the lion's den, and those lions didn't touch Daniel. Quench the power of fire. We think of Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, thrown into the fiery furnace by king Nebuchadnezzar for not worshiping the idol he had set up. And the fire didn't even scorch their clothing, and we re- we hear the story in Daniel chapter three. Listen to this: Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, from it, and He will deliver us from Your Majesty's hand. And then listen, but even if He does not, we want you to know, Your Majesty. That we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Sounds a lot like Pastor Joseph Son, doesn't it? That's faith. And that's a faith that conquers. And then the author continues. He says, who escaped the edge of the sword, who were made strong out of weakness. Now here you might be thinking of Samson, but I'm going to come back to that phrase, strong out of weakness. Became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. We think of Gideon, all the other warriors in the wild and woolly book of Judges in the Old Testament. And women received back their dead by resurrection. Did you know that resurrection was in the Old Testament? That kind of hit me by surprise. I had forgotten a couple of little stories tucked away in the Old Testament. In first Kings chapter seventeen, the prophet Elijah is staying with a with a widow, and the widow's son dies. And the prophet Elijah lies down on him and prays to the God of heaven and the boy is resuscitated. He comes back to life. Similarly, in 2 Kings 4, a very similar story, Elisha and the Shunammite woman's son. He dies. And Elisha calls out to the God of heaven and he's restored to life. All these are extraordinary, even miraculous victories of faith. It's a faith that conquers. Now, I've never been threatened with fire, or sword, or lions. My guess is you haven't either. I've never seen a resurrection. My guess is you haven't either. But there's that little phrase right in the middle. Out of weakness, they were made strong. Weakness, that I do know something about. My guess is you do too. Weakness. That is, when we feel experience struggle or pain or discouragement or fear when you're when you feel like you're hanging on the faith just by the tips of your fingernails and you feel like anything but a hero. You might even feel like a failure. And we remember the Apostle Paul's words in Second Corinthians in the New Testament. But he said to me, the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that God uses the faith of flawed people. God works through our weaknesses to accomplish his own purposes. So that's the first thing, faith that conquers. But there's a second thing we see, and that is faith that suffers. Some 25 years or so ago uh, now, I was part of a team from our church that went to Russia, and I've told stories about this this trip before. We visited what then was our sister church uh, at the time, uh, Transfiguration Baptist Church in Samara, uh, which is about 400 miles southeast of Moscow. The pastor of that church, a wonderful man named Pastor Victor Ryogazov, uh, invited me to preach at his church on a Sunday morning. But before the service, he took me back to a little back room, sort of near where his office was. would have been like back behind this area. And he wanted to introduce me, he said, to his elders. And so it was a little like boardroom with a long table, and, and he brought me in just just minutes before the service. And sitting around the table were about 10 old Russian men. Looked like most of them were in their 80s. Uh, wispy white hair, kind of grizzled, wrinkled faces, steely blue eyes. And they were all looking at me. And, and Pastor Victor introduced me as the pastor who, from America who had preached that day. And they all nodded at me with great respect. And then he introduced to me each one of them by name. And as he introduced them by name, he shared how they had suffered for the sake of Christ. It went something like this. Pastor Brian, this is, past, this is Brother Dimitri. He spent 20 years in a labor camp in the Gulag for bearing witness to Christ. This is Brother Vladimir. He was arrested and lost his job and his house for sharing the gospel with a neighbor. This is Brother Boris. His children were all expelled from their university because of his faith. And he went around each of these 10 men. And it hit me that their qualification To become elders was what they had suffered for the sake of the gospel and Christ. And I thought to myself, you want me to preach to them? I never felt so unworthy and unqualified in my whole life. Verse Verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Now, if you're with me, you're thinking, whoa, whoa, that turns south in a hurry. You know, from conquering kingdoms and stopping the mouths of lions and resurrection from the dead to chains, imprisonment, Torture, flogging, sawn in two? Who are all these people, nameless now, that the author's talking about? Well, we don't know with certainty because he doesn't name them. Some ancient traditions say it was actually the prophet Isaiah who was sawn in two as a way of taking his life. Now, interestingly, there's a word uh, in this passage in the ancient Greek that is untranslated in the, in the translation we're reading today. It's the word perazzo, and it means to test or to tempt. And I'm going to come back to it a little bit later. It's in some manuscripts. It's not in this translation we're looking at today. In 2 Chronicles 24, we're told that Zechariah, son of uh, a priest named Jehoiada, was actually stoned to death for preaching about the coming judgment of God on all sin. In Jeremiah 26, the prophet Uriah is killed by the sword for doing the very same thing, preaching the coming judgment of God on all sin. So, what do we make of this? What is the writer say, saying by this hard left turn from conquering into suffering? Now, remember, the purpose of this letter to the Hebrews. It was written to Jewish background followers of Jesus in the first century who were beginning to experience serious discrimination and even persecution for their faith. And they're just barely hanging on. So the writer is telling them that, yes, God does work wonders and miraculous victories through faith, but faith does not guarantee triumph in this life does not guarantee comfort and wealth and opportunity and health faith is much deeper than that he say faith is that which also sustains hangs on even through suffering especially through suffering now i have never known my guess is you have not either this kind of suffering it's foreign to us where we live in the world but it continues To this present day. Did you know that in the last 100 years, more followers of Jesus have been martyred than in all the previous centuries combined? According to Lifeway Research, in the past year, some 380 million Christians, or one in seven believers on the face of the earth, suffered significant persecution for their faith. In 2021, some 6,000 believers were killed for their faith. That's an average of 16 every day somewhere in the world. Places like Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, Yemen. Those are the top five abusers of followers of Jesus. So why do they suffer and we do not? We don't know. The Bible doesn't give us that answer. But we do know that there is something divinely ordained and glorious about those chosen to suffer for Christ. They are those of whom the world is not worthy. And When I read that phrase, I always think of a man I met in 2019 in Tanzania, Pastor Fred Wangwa. Uh, he was born into extreme, crushing poverty, eventually was adopted by a small little local church who sent him to school? He actually became their pastor at age 22. He's gone on to plant more than 10 churches uh, in, in the mountains surrounding uh, in, in, uh, where he lives in Tanzania and, and trained all those pastors by himself. He recently started a church for Muslim background new believers under threat of violence from the local neighborhood. And Pastor Fred will never write a book, he'll never have a podcast, the world will never know his name. I believe he's one of those of whom the world is not worthy. But what about us? What about us? Where do we fit into this picture? What are the lions and the swords that we face here in our comfortable North American world? How are we tempted and tried by the world around us? Well, I think we too have an enemy. The Bible is clear. We have an enemy. But our enemy works in much more subtle ways ways than lions and swords in our culture. But every bit as dangerous, maybe even more dangerous. Because our enemy is our affluence. Our enemy is our comfort that lulls us into complacency and living in a culture that relentlessly attacks the very heart of our faith at every turn. The Bible is a fable. Science has proved there's no need for belief in God. or There is no truth, only your truth, only what you think is true. We hear that over and over again. Hebrews 11 is telling us that no, no, hang on to the truth that just as all these have gone before, just as some of them have conquered and some of them have suffered, hang on, hang on to a faith that conquers, hang on to a faith that suffers because God has promised and what he promises he will do. And one day he will make our faith perfect, he says. That leads us to the third point, that is the faith that is made perfect. So a faith that conquers, a faith that suffers, and a faith that's made perfect. Verse 39, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Okay, let's try to make sense of this. He says all these, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Moses, all we've looked at all summer long, the whole list, some who by faith knew great victory. Some who by faith endured great suffering. All these were commended by their faith, but did not receive what was promised. So we have to ask the question, what, what promise? What promise did they back then die without ever seeing? Well, the short answer is the promise of Messiah. The promise of of a Savior. The promise of one who would deliver. Verse 40, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Now the word, the phrase made perfect means to be finished or to be completed. So the whole story arc of the Bible, the writer of Hebrews understands, is the promise of Jesus. The whole story arc, all of it, from the creation of all things, to the Garden of Eden, to the story of Noah and the Ark, the Abrahamic Covenant. I will bless you with with people and through that people I'll bless the whole world. From the Exodus and the Passover Lamb to all the prophets, the whole of it, all of these. From Abel to the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they all believed what God had promised, that he had promised to them. But none lived to see that promise fulfilled. But here's the thing. We have the promise. We have seen the promise fulfilled. We have the New Testament. We have the story of the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus. We have the story of the cross and the empty tomb and the resurrection. And this way we see Jesus as the fulfillment of the entire ark of the promise of God. But that promise is not yet finished or perfect. Let me me take a little theological side trip here. So stay with me. There are two very common mistakes we make in our thinking about our faith. The first one is living like or thinking like God has not done what he says he's already done. Okay, follow? For example, saying things like, well, God could never forgive me. He could never forgive my sin. My sin's too great. Or I, I, he's, he's abandoned me. He's left me alone. No. No, God has already said he's already done that. The cross says he's already forgiven your sin. All of it. There's nothing you can do to earn any more forgiveness. There's nothing you have done that can't be forgiven. He's done that. He's given us his Holy Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. To live within us, to dwell with us forever. You are not alone. Okay, so that's the first mistake. Living as if God has not done what he says he's already done. But there's a second mistake. And that is living like or thinking like God has already done what he says he has not yet done. Okay, you following me here? I know it's kind of a tongue twister. Examples. Well, I must not have enough faith because I still struggle with sin. Or I must not have enough faith or God must not be who says he is because he hasn't healed me when I've asked to be healed. Or he hasn't healed my loved one or hasn't given me the job i'm looking for or i still face hardship no 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 that hasn't happened yet god has never promised to heal all our diseases now he hasn't promised to to fulfill all our wishes now that's still coming in the new heaven and the earth where there is no more sin no more crying no more death or no more pain but that's not now so all the way through hebrews eleven we've seen the promise of a future home what the writer calls a longing for a heavenly city. And that promise we know through the New Testament is fulfilled uh, in two steps, maybe the best way to say it. The Bible's very clear that those who die in faith are with Christ immediately. They're with the glorified Christ in some spiritual realm immediately. It's a mystery. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We know that. We celebrate that. But just as clearly, we are told that Jesus has promised to come again. And it's when he comes again that he will redeem all things, all of creation, give us new spiritual bodies, and that we will live in and dwell in to live with him, serve with him, reign with him forever and ever. And that hasn't happened yet. That is still to come. And this is what the author means by apart from us, They should not be made perfect. What he's saying is that we are all of us, the people in Hebrews 11, and all of us here, going to be made perfect at the same time. We're all waiting for the same promise. That is when Jesus comes again to redeem all things. So let me wrap up. Uh, Many of you know, most of you know, that my dad uh, died earlier this summer in June. And many of you have sent notes and cards and And let me know of your prayers, and we really appreciate that. And this past week, uh, another man died, a Christian author named Frederick Buechner, who my dad and I both enjoyed reading, and we actually had a chance to meet and have lunch with in his home way back in 1990. And at his death, I was reminded of one of my favorite quotes from one of his books. In speaking of the death of a saint and the promise of heaven, he wrote this. What's lost is nothing to what's found. And all the death that ever was set next to life would scarcely fill a cup. Let me read it again. What's lost is nothing to what's found, and all the death that ever was set next to life would scarcely fill a cup. The writer of the book of Hebrews is saying that's true. It was true for the ancient heroes of faith, flawed as they were. It was true when they experienced great victories. It was true when they suffered. And it's true for us today. God has promised. He made a promise to Abraham to bless the whole world through his descendants. And to those descendants, he promised a Messiah who would save and deliver. And the Messiah came in the person of Jesus, of Nazareth. Jesus fulfilled the promise of salvation. But Jesus also promised to come again. To redeem all things, and that promise is not yet fulfilled, but it will be. And on that day, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, "Our faith and their faith will be made perfect, finished." Bow with me as I pray. Lord God, today we thank you for your word. Thank you for this two thousand year old letter written to people who were struggling to hang on to faith sometimes we also struggle maybe not in the same way but we know what it is to feel weak we know what it is to sometimes fail we don't understand the suffering of the world or even sometimes our own sufferings so remind us by your word that our faith is not in the strength of our faith our faith is in your strength in the promises of you our God so help us to trust fully in what you have already done. And help us to trust fully in what you promise you yet will do. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we leave, hear these words from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back the dead, our Lord Jesus, that the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.